Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his series, Everything Over Nothing, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you enjoy. Thanks, Benito. Appreciate you, man. Great job setting the tone for the service, and thanks to Joe and Hannah. It's Lowry, appreciate you guys leading us in worship. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter eight. And we're gonna start the new year just continuing our sermon series in Ecclesiastes. The two passages that Bennett read for us. If you notice the lights flickering behind you uh, as they were during the songs, that's just the Holy Spirit moving. And so do not worry about it. He's alive and active here at Tulsa Bible Church, which is great. Um, Actually, he's probably just bats in the belfry, honestly. Maybe some loose wires. Troy's working on replacing some dimmers for us. So Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Also, just uh, before we begin, just want to encourage you to grab one of our January prayer calendars. should be out now at the welcome desk. The verse that we're praying through today is Romans 5, verse 1, that we have peace with God because we are justified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to start out this new year just praying verse after verse of Scripture. Again, grab one of those calendars with you. What I do is I just fold it in half and put it in the cover of my Bible. And so every day when I do my devotions or Scripture reading or studying, I pull that out and, uh, and pray together with TBC. I want to encourage you to do that. Was the late uh, George Carlin, who once asked if he still supported the adage of the 1960s, challenge authority. And he said, no, he doesn't support it anymore. His new adage is, destroy authority. That mentality has absolutely multiplied exponentially, especially in America and with this generation today. There's no question about what our society and our culture has come to believe about authority. Whether you are, uh, we're speaking of the president, the pope, pastors, politicians, whether it's the police. At large, people have shifted from challenging authority to now destroying authority. And the main question that we have is not what is the culture and, and what is the stance on our perspective of authorities in the culture. The main question is how has this shifted so quickly in our generation, in our time, in our culture? And one of the landmark books that offers an answer to that question was written by a, a professor, a late professor, he died in 2006. It goes by the name of Philip Reef. And he was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And what he suggested was an oversimplification of what has become a very uh, self-centered, therapy-centered perspective in our culture and our, our society. But generally, it sums up exactly why we are at the place that we are as a culture today in America. And what he suggested was very simple. For almost all of history, people have uh, directed their attention outward to figure out who they are as an individual and their significance in their identity. The culture directs individuals outward for a sense of their significance. Reef said, we learn about who we are by conforming ourselves to the purposes of the larger community to whom we belong. 
So we learn about who we are, we understand our identity by conforming ourselves to the purposes of the larger community in whom we belong. And for most generations, this makes complete sense. Complete sense. If you were uh, uh, raised at the time of the Japanese samurai warrior, and you were a boy, and you learned how to wield a, a samurai sword greatly, that was gonna give you honor, significance, and a strong identity specifically in that culture. But at the same time, if your interest was perhaps to be a banker, that wouldn't have given you the same honor and the same significance. We are all a people that are constantly looking to the culture. We are framed by it, we are shaped by it, we do things that the culture recognizes. But the same isn't true of today, and I wanna show you exactly why. Philip Reef in his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, believed that there are several landmark shifts in how our culture today has come to understand our identity and our significance. And the first one he talked about was he went back all the way to the ancient Greeks, and he talked about the political man. The likes of Plato and Aristotle believed that the political man found his identity in engaging in the life of the polis. Polis is the, the Greek word for city. The political man is, is a man who is deeply immersed in community life, in the marketplace, in the centers of learning and gaining wisdom, in the agora, we read about this in, in Acts chapter 17 when, when Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill he is engaging the thinkers and the leaders of his day. The political man was a, an identity that was shaped by his influence in the civil community of his day. Eventually, the political man gave way to what the Middle Ages was referred to as the religious man. Not unlike some people today, the religious man gained his identity and his significance for attending mass, for engaging in religious services, for doing pilgrimages and, and feasts and celebrations that were called upon by his particular religion. They were educated with the best and the brightest at the time of the Middle Ages, and for that education, they probably would have gone to the cathedrals, the great cathedrals of learning that started our system of education. After the religious man lived out his cultural identity, it was brought to our light the economic man. And the economic emerged as this person who finds himself successfully making money in economies of gain. Of course, the scientific revolution gave way to the industrial revolution, and mass production became possible. Uh, people learning profits and loss and how to gain as much profit as possible through the systems of the economies of, a, of an industrialized revolution. The economic man would be a, a business tycoon, a capitalist, acquainted again with, with marketing and, and profits. And all of these men, whether it was the political man, the religious man, or the economic man, all of them found their identity by looking outward into the culture. But the next man was completely different. And the cultural influence completely changed when it came to identifying this fourth man that Philip Reith points out. He calls the fourth man the psychological man. The psychological man is, is totally different from all the rest. His identity is not shaped whatsoever by looking outward into the culture, to family, to society, and finding his significance in those places. Instead, the psychological man turns his gaze inward. He peers deep within himself, 
and he finds within himself emotions and feelings and things to make him feel better about himself. Psychological man is on a quest for personal and emotional happiness at all costs. But here's the kicker. The only way that psychological man can survive is if the outer culture not only supports the identity that he finds with looking in, but actually honors that as something that's acceptable and welcomed as a way to finding identity and significance in this world. The psychological man is satisfied only with personal happiness, and they are deeply shaped by the likes of Sigmund Freud. It's probably a name that you have heard before. Freud believed that the culture is determined most by what a, a civilization forbids. So religion wasn't really about truth as much as it was about manipulation, authority, and getting people to behave a certain way. Acceptable behavior was established by an authority that was beyond the natural. Acceptable behavior was guided by the standards from something that was supernatural or otherworldly. But to believe in the supernatural in the modern period of Sigmund Freud was to believe in wishful thinking. God wasn't real. real. God was Santa Claus. It was something that you went to to look to, to make yourself feel better, to convince yourself that you were a really good person when in actuality you had sin and, and issues that you had to deal with starting at the root in your heart. To experience personal happiness, psychological man says, look no further than yourself and your feelings. And one of the reasons why I'm taking a lot of time to dig into uh, this very broad swap of history is because everybody over the age of 50 in this room is asking themselves, how in the world has the culture shifted so fast? And how has it become so different than the culture that I was raised in, that my parents raised me in, that my grandparents raised me in? Are we really living in a world that is defunding the police? G.K. Chesterton put it this way, the modern critics of authority are like men who should attack the police without ever, hurting, ever heard of burglars, right? Nobody's robbing my house, so robbers don't really exist. I don't need the police. The modern mentality has shifted everything and our world is toppling over itself and imploding upon itself. Others in this room between the ages of 30 and 50 are asking pastors and they're asking all kinds of people everywhere, what am I going to do to help my children understand how to respect authority when it comes to their first job, their superiors, or just living submissively to elders and people that deserve our respect? Still others yet are wondering why they can't find a job that makes them totally happy and content in life, or they can't find that video game or that phone or that friend or that relationship, not realizing the expensive wool that has been pulled over your eyes by a deeply self-centered and self-saturated culture from psychological man. The reality is, for most of human history, People looked to someone or something outside of themselves for their truest sense of identity and significance. Those things or that person was the authority 
And that authority was one that would establish what is good and what is ethical. But now, for the very first time in history, people are looking within instead of outside. And guess what? The culture not only approves of that stance, but upholds it and honors it and welcomes it for future generations. Rebelling against authority is not forbidden anymore. It's foundational for your identity in this culture. And that is a sad commentary. It was Rousseau who famously quipped, man is born free and everywhere in chains. Man is born free and everywhere in chains. And the implication for the romantic was to liberate yourself by looking within and disregard the authorities of your day. It is there and there alone that you will find the triumph of the individual. The sovereign self rules over all. You will find an expressive humanism that's main concern and his only concern is for happiness and personal flourishing above all else. The theme verse of the psychological man is the last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is the world in which we are living. Again, we're in our, uh, our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this ancient text today is gonna tell us to respect the authorities over us. And this ancient book proves to be yet again more relevant for our day and our culture than we might have otherwise thought. In our sermon series through Ecclesiastes, we have said that the the end of the book of Ecclesiastes from chapter six, verse nine, all the way through chapter 12, verse seven, is just giving us a lot of life lessons. And so lesson number one that we looked at a few weeks ago is that life's not fair, right? Life's not fair. Bad things happen to good people all the time. Good things happen to bad people. And the fact that life's not fair shouldn't be a, a something that trips us up or something that we would even rebel against. We don't want fair from God. In fact, if we got fairness from God, we would only receive condemnation, death, and judgment. What we plead for as Christians instead is for grace and for mercy. That is the only thing we can plead from, from an all-righteous and a just God. We saw number two life lesson was to develop some self-awareness today. The third life lesson that Kohelet, the preacher, is going to give us is to respect the authorities that God has put over us. And so in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 2 through 9, and chapter 10, verse 16 through 20, we're going to see three things. Number one, how to respect authority. Number two, how to address authority. And then number three, what to expect from authority. Respecting, addressing, and expecting expectations from authority. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, this is just a hard sermon for me as it is for everybody else in this room. I grew up in a context where I did not respect any authority that was put over me. I didn't have to learn it. Nobody taught it to me. It was very natural. I hated my parents growing up. My favorite bands were Rage Against the Machine and Metallica, all right? You're talking about bands that are against every kind of authority that you could ever ask for. The freedom of, for, from authority was my battle cry. I was a rebel just for kicks, as the song goes. 
The Bible teaches that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. God, as the ultimate authority, also chooses to delegate his authority. And he ordains divinely delegated authority to those who have positions that are above us for our good and ultimately for his glory. And so Timothy Whitmer gives us a warning that I wanna heed just right at the beginning of the sermon. And he says this in his book, The Shepherd Leader. He says, before you tear down a fence, you should understand why it was put there in the first place. I want us all to take off our millennial hats and our young hats and put on the hat of an elder today. And all of them in this room will tell you that authorities are a good thing for society and a culture, and they're a God thing because God has ordained those authorities. And so if we are gonna walk humbly and submissively before God, then we are going to respect and acknowledge the authorities that he has given us to obey and to respect. And Ecclesiastes chapter eight and chapter 10 are gonna talk all about that. All right. Number one, and number one in your outline. Respect authority, respect authority. Verse two, look down at verse two, it says this. We're gonna run into some issues almost right away in this text. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, verse, verse 2 is one of the hardest verses to translate in all of the book of Ecclesiastes. And the first part of the verse is very clear. Keep the king's command. It's the second part that makes verse 2 very complex, and it all comes down to a prepositional phrase. You really have two main choices on how you're gonna interpret verse two in Ecclesiastes eight. Your first choice is something like this. Keep the king's command because of your oath to him or because of God's oath to him. If you go with your oath to him, that would be referring to God. If you go with God's oath to him, the him at the end would be referring to you. The second option you have is to translate it this way. Keep the king's command and do not rush into a vow to God. Now those are, are two very different things in the perspective of the verse and how to understand it. Grammatically, either option is on the table. If you take the first option, the verse gives a command followed by a reason. If you take the second option, it means something like this. Obey the authorities over you, whether they are human authorities or whether they are divine authorities. Either way, behind verse 2 is a recognition and acknowledgement and a response to the authorities that God has put over us, which is common throughout wisdom literature. Look at Proverbs 24, verse 21 and 22. Fear the Lord as well as the king, and do not associate with rebels, for suddenly their destruction will overtake them. And who knows the ruinous judgment both the Lord and the king can bring. Or, Proverbs 14, verse 35. The king shows favor to a wise servant, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. Not only does this lesson teach us what to do, but Kohelet and the preacher in Ecclesiastes also tells us what not to do. Do not, look down at verse three, Ecclesiastes eight, do not be hasty to leave the presence of a king. 
It follows that up with, do not take a stance for something that is evil. Why? What's the big deal behind that? Because the king does what he pleases, and because his word, the preacher says, is supreme. Now, I know these are are really tough verses. If you're anything like me, who has questioned, challenged, and even took a stance to destroy authority in a previous life, they raise a lot of questions in your mind. Remember, Kohelet did tell us in chapter three, there's a time for everything. There's a time to tear down, there's a time to build up. There's a time to break, there's a time to heal. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. When I read these verses in Ecclesiastes, immediately what comes into my mind is is Romans chapter 13, verse one. And scripture is not going to contradict itself. And and a lot of these these truths, we just take them by faith. The authorities that the apostle Paul was mentioning in Romans were about as bad as they get. But Romans 13 verse one says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so we submit to the authorities over us. I think of the life of Christ before Pilate, and Pilate asked him, do you not know that I have the authority to release you or that I have the authority to crucify you? And and remember what Jesus said right back to him? You don't have any authority unless it has been given to you from above. So let me uh, attempt to provide somewhat of a spectrum on where we fall on this whole authority issue, because this is a hard topic in leadership and submission. On one side of authority, you have the leaders who abuse it. On the other side of the spectrum, you have neglecting authority and its proper use. Somewhere in the middle of those two things is a healthy and a biblical response to the authorities that God has put over it, over us. Both sides are wrong. We don't abuse our authority when we are in positions of leadership. We don't neglect the appropriate use of authority as the Bible instructs us in Romans 13 and in these other verses in Proverbs that we're talking about. There are lessons about authority for those who are in it. There are lessons for authority for those who are under it. But authority, harsh authority, without compassion will lead to authoritarianism. Compassion without authority will lead to social chaos. And we're seeing a lot of it in 2020. I hope that changes in 2021. To those under authority, the wisdom literature, this is not absolute, every time, always type of principles. These are general principles to be used with wisdom when the time is appropriate and the time is appropriate to respect the authorities that God has placed over us. Number one, you're outline number one. How? How do we respect authority? We submit to them knowing that God has placed those authorities in our life, and we operate on his ordained government in his orders, not on our own. Number two, how do we address authority? Let's talk about addressing authority, Ecclesiastes uh, 8. 
I want to be a friend and tell, tell you right away that not everybody is going to agree with my interpretations on these verses, even commentators, just about every commentary that you pick up on these verses will tell you a little something different. All right, so look down at, at verse 5, and I'm going to read through verse 9 here again. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy upon him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. It seems to me that it makes the most sense to take verses five through nine as one distinct paragraph. There is one collective thought that is drawing all of these verses together. Some people want to separate them. In fact, one main translation makes a distinction right at the end of verse five instead of before verse five. But there's a common word that draws all this together. In verse five, you're going to see right away the mention of evil. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. That same word for evil is repeated in verse six. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble, that's evil. The same Hebrew word that you saw in verse five. Man's trouble in verse six is specific to the context. Man's trouble is not addressing the king properly. And when you don't address the king properly, that's going to lead to evil, to misery, now, basketball fans will know the example I'm about to give. This is one of the great, I've used this in so many sermon illustrations, especially with kids. Are you all familiar with Coach Gino from the University of Connecticut women's basketball? This guy is like one of the w most winning coaches ever in the NCAA. The women's program at uh, UConn is unbelievable. And, and Coach Gino has a very famous speech. It's on YouTube. It's probably got, I, I don't know by now, 50 million hits or something, you can go just put in Coach, G Coach Gino's speech from UConn. And he talks about his players and the types of players that he tries to recruit. Everybody knows this program is an unbelievable program that has hands and fists above all the rest. They win so many more games than any other program. And again, they were in the Final Four in 2016, and the reporters were asking him in a press conference, how is it that year after year, you have All-Americans and winning teams after winning teams. What are you doing that's so different than what every other team is doing, what every other coach is doing? And he, put it, he boiled it down all to one simple thing. When he recruits players, he says, he recruits for attitude. And listen to this quote. He says, on our team, we, me, my coaching staff, we put a huge premium on body language. If your body language is bad, you will never get in a game, ever. I don't care how good you are. Coach Gino was uh, asked why he benched one of his All-American players for, for one or two full games in the middle of the season. And some people were saying he was just trying to get her ready for this, this next big game that was coming up. He said, no, I'm not trying to get her ready for anything. So she was acting like a 12-year-old on the court. And so I told her she can sit on the bench and think about what she's done until she's ready to change her attitude. He says this, I'd rather lose 
than watch kids play the way that some play because they're always thinking about themselves. The way that you conduct yourself, your attitude, your demeanor on the, on the court, off the court, and while sitting on the bench meant everything for this coach for UConn. Listen, your countenance is almost always a reflection of your heart. And a countenance before a king was always a direct reflection of the heart. We didn't read this first, but go back and, and look at verse 1 in chapter 8. It says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. It changes his countenance. And the hardness of his face is changed. If your heart is to harm those in authority rather than to help those in authority, it is an evil thing that you are doing. If your heart is to harm those in authority rather than to help those in authority, that in many times can absolutely be biblically labeled as a sin, right? The big picture, it's evil not to address the king properly. The preacher builds on this idea with three parallel statements. And all the statements say the exact same thing in just a different way. Look down at verse eight. Here's the first statement. Just as no man has the power to retain the wind or the spirit, just as, number two, no man has the power over death, just as, number three, no man will be discharged in the midst of a battle, so too the wickedness of not properly addressing a king will never deliver that person. The, the clear principle right here from Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is there is a right way to address someone in authority, authority and there is a wrong way. And sometimes your face can tell the whole story about that. And so the preacher tells us to respect those in authority and address those in authority in a certain way. And I'm the, the last person that's going to stand up here and tell anybody to play politics to put on a face and pretend that you are somebody that you are not. I will tell you, biblically, if you are walking with the Lord, you don't just go in front of authority and act and say what you want to say and whatever's on your heart. You treat those situations very carefully with wisdom, and you treat the person in authority with dignity and respect, because that is ultimately what God calls for. Number three in your outline. What can we expect from authority? What can we expect from authority? Turn over to chapter 10, verse 16. And again, we're just putting these topics together as we close out the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and verses 16 through 20 have everything to do about the authorities. Chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, very succinctly, a nation and a land are in trouble if they have a very immature leader. However, they are blessed if they have a leader who has noble character, a leader that has righteousness in his actions in dealing with people. There's a comparison in verses 16 and 17. There is a good king and there is a bad king. 
The land will be affected by the good kings in one way, it'll be uh, transgressed and, and affected by a bad king in another way. Now, verses 18 and 19 seem to carry on that same comparison. There's a comparison between a good king and a bad king. Only, it's the bad king that comes first in verse 18, it's the good king that comes next in verse 19. Look at, look at verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Verse 19, bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens the life, and money answers everything. The order is the only thing that is reversed between the comparisons in verses 16 and 17 and the comparison in verses 18 and 19. And these verses seem to point out the results of what a kingdom, what a nation and a land can expect based on the leaders who are over it. Again, these are general principles. Now, if that's true, verses 19, verse 19 specifically, should be taken at, at face value, all right? This is not Solomon speaking in a negative tone at all. I think verse 19, you just, just take it for what it says. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens the life. Are those things true? Yes, they are true. Money answers everything. For a king and for his kingdom, money will be reflected as a, as a prosperous nation and a prosperous land. And so in that context, money answers those things, right? This chapter ends with an admonition to not even think about cursing a king and by implication, people in authority. The dangers are too great, and the repercussions are too grave. Look down at verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Kohelet warns his hearers not to speak evil of a king even in their own minds and not to curse the rich even in their own house. As the saying goes, the walls have ears, right? Cell phones do too. Good call. <laughs> Respect authority. Address authority. What to expect from authority. Now, any discussion on authority is eventually going to lead to the idea of rights, personal rights, the freedoms that we have underneath the authorities that are over us. And I want to give to you just, a, I'm going to read a, a very brief snippet from a book called The Great Divorce. Uh, some of you guys have known this. We've got our college class that is going through this right now. And in every single chapter of The Great Divorce, you're presented with a character who is dealing with the reality of heaven and hell and how they experience it. So the great divorce is not about marriage and divorce separations. The great divorce is about the difference between heaven and hell and the people that occupy those places. Lewis uh, scripts a, a marvelous dialogue between a person who is in heaven who you wouldn't expect to be there and a person who is in hell who you wouldn't expect to be there. And I wanna read, tell you a little bit about it. Uh, the person in heaven is actually a murderer in this context. His name is Len. And just listen to how um, the person in hell wants his rights. In fact, demands to have his rights. The person in hell says this. He says, I have gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I'd done my best 
all my life, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's the sort I was. And I don't care who knows it. The murderer in, in heaven says, it would be much better not to go on about that right now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. I'm asking for nothing but my rights. And I'm only a poor man, but I gotta have my rights. Same as you, see? Oh, no, it's, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, says the man of heaven, or I should not be here. And you will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. And so never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I've always done my best, and I've never done anything wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you b will be. Only be happy and, and come with me. Why do you keep arguing with me? I'm only telling you that I'm the sort of chap that I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do. At once. Ask for bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought, says the man in heaven. That may do very well for you, I dare say. If they choose to let you in, a bloody murderer, because all he makes a, a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat as you, see? Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. And if I had my rights, I'd been here long ago. And you can tell them that I said so. The other shook his head. You can never do it like that, he said. You'll be tired out before you even get to the mountains. And it isn't exactly true, you know, and he, as he explained, the dearth danced in his eyes, Lewis says. What isn't true, said the man sulkily. You weren't a decent man, and you didn't do your best. None of us were, and none of us did. Lord bless you. It doesn't even matter. Why do we have a culture that demands to have its rights? Why are we filled with people that think that they're pretty decent people and they just want what they deserve and that that's going to be a good thing? And I would submit to you is the fact that they're not really looking in at their heart and the condition of it before a holy God. What do you have a right to apart from God? What does anybody have a right to apart from God? Do you have a right to a good life? Do you have a right to earn the things that you deserve in your own mind and in your own way? What really do you have a right to to have the blessings and possessions and, and the freedoms that we all want so desperately. If God gave us what was rightfully ours, what would the result of that be? Life isn't fair. We don't want fair. I want my rights. You don't want your rights. Your rights lead to one place and one place alone apart from God a life of eternity separated from him. But when we submit 
to the authorities over us. What we get from God is not our rights, but something far greater and far better than any of that. What we get from God is the blessing of eternity and something that we don't deserve and we never have a right to in the first place. He gives it to us solely on the basis of grace. Biblically, submission to God's authority doesn't demand to have our rights, but willingly gives over our freedoms to God. We are, a, we are a blessed people living in a nation that has something called the Bill of Rights, and it is a huge blessing to have those. But before an almighty God, you don't have the right to anything. You don't have the right to the next breath. It is given to you. Everything is granted to you from God above. A biblical understanding of submitting to authority doesn't demand rights, but willingly gives those freedoms over to God. And every time the Bible talks about rights, it doesn't say that we claim them, we grasp onto them. It says, as humans, we give those rights and those freedoms back over to God for his purposes and for his glory. We don't reach out for rights. We don't demand to have our rights as Christians. We use our freedoms in Christ as bondservants to God, not as a covering for evil, as 1 Peter 2, verse 16 will say. We give all our rights over to God to do with them as he pleases, as we surrender all to God, as we sang this morning. Number two, all human authority is derived. All human authority is derived. Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go and make disciples. And if it's true that all human authority is derived from God, then that means the proper exercise of that authority takes place under the prescriptions from God. Those things that he lays out for us in Scripture. Those who hold authority are responsible to exercise that authority in a way that God has prescribed for us in Scripture. We don't lord it over the people that are under our charge. We don't rule harshly. We don't rule in enforced submission over people, but we rule gently as a lamb and as strong as a lion. Jesus laid down for us the perfect example of authority. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't demand his freedom. He laid it all down at the foot of the cross, and he gave it over for us. He submitted himself, entrusting himself to the Father, not demanding anything from him, but giving himself in complete surrender to a God who is good, perfect, and just. When the Bible tells us to submit to the authorities that are over us, it is because God has ordained that that is how we function in a life without socially living in chaos every step of the way. And guess what? Those authorities are sinners. They're not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. At the end of the day, does it even matter? Are you going to submit to them? For how long? And then all of us meet a greater authority. And if we haven't made the decision to submit to that authority, it doesn't matter about any of the rest. In 2021, I can guarantee you one thing. It's going to be really hard to submit to the authorities that are over us. It is our responsibility as Christians to do so. Because that is what God commands us to do. 
And so let's carry that out with faith, trusting that all the authorities that are given to us are placed there by God for our good. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for these tough lessons on authority. And Lord, we all know that, that there is a time when authorities go too far and there's a proper response to make, there's a proper way to address those authorities when the time is right. Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray for faith. We pray for the ability to believe that you are sovereign and you are in control. And because that is true, it really doesn't matter what happens in this lifetime. What happens and what matters the most is eternity. We submit ourselves to you, God, asking that you would care for us, that you would bless us, that you'd give us the desires of our heart when they're centered completely and fully on you. In 2021, give us an eternal perspective on the authorities that are over us. Give us a heart to follow the uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 8s and the, the Romans 13s and the First Peters. Lord, help us to, to submit to the rulers, to the leaders that are over us, that they might lead well, joyfully, because of it. Father, we ask all these things to you through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.